Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Ryan Kitagawa, um, and tonight we will be uh, presenting our podcast on the complication management of traumatic brain injury. We want to thank the Congress of Neurological Surgeons as well as the Neurocritical Care Society for hosting this event. As I said, my name is Ryan Kitagawa. I'm a uh, neurosurgeon who specializes in neurotrauma and critical care. Um, I practice in, in Houston, Texas, and uh, tonight we'll be uh, discussing that topic. I'll let my guest uh, introduce herself. Hi, I'm Mirnaz Pajamond. I am a critical care pharmacy specialist. Um, I work at the University of Maryland Medical Center um, at the R. Adams College Shock Trauma Center, and I work in the neurotrauma ICU. Well, we thought if our topic is on the uh, uh, management of complications in traumatic brain injury, and we have a pharmacy specialist, that we will focus uh, our attention on topics specifically to that. And we have several topics that we will discuss. Um, in my own clinical practice, one of the most challenging things, uh, particularly in modern times, is patients who are on blood thinners who then suffer a traumatic brain injury. And this is something where a knowledge of those medications and the reversal agents, I think, is absolutely essential. Um, you know, I do various, uh, um, um, I have various ways of which I manage these patients. And I think a lot of it depends on the particular patient. And I think as time goes on, we are really, um, um, really trying to manage the individualized patient and their individualized medical conditions in terms of how we manage that. And so we have to break it down into several things. Um, the first of which is we have to break it down according to what kind of trauma, what kind of hemorrhage they have inside of their head, and how risky is that lesion of expanding and potentially causing a neurological problem, as well as what medications they're on and what are the complications of reversing those agents. So, for example, I would classify the low-risk hemorrhages as things like a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, a small intraventricular hemorrhage, too, would be relatively uh, low risk. Um, interhemispheric subdural hematomas, tentorial subdural hematomas, all of these are relatively uh, low-risk lesions for expansion. Now, the sort of moderate risk, those that could potentially become operative or, or cause a decline, things like small um, convexity subdural hematomas are certainly concerning, as well as uh, you know, small shearing injuries after trauma versus those that are actually quite high risk. Um, those can include cerebral contusions, um, you know, potentially borderline operative subdural hematomas, or of course, the, the very high risk where it actually is an operative lesion and you have to take the patient to, to the operating room along the way. Um, you know, some of the medications that we may encounter include antiplatelet agents, things like aspirin and clopidogrel and, and all the newer agents. In terms of the anticoagulants, you know, we see um, warfarin as a very common anticoagulant, but in, in the new generation, we're dealing with a lot of um, um, anti-10A, uh, excuse me, 10A inhibitors, uh, as well as uh, um, direct thrombin inhibitors as well. Now, have you seen uh, these newer medications used more frequently these days? Yeah, in our practice, we are seeing a lot of patients come in uh, on factor 10A inhibitors. Uh, primarily, apixaban and rivaroxaban is what we're seeing a lot of. Um, we're not seeing so much of the direct thrombin inhibitors, um, such as dabigatran. I feel like the use of that has kind of been waning. Uh, so that's what we're seeing a lot of. I probably don't see as much warfarin as I used to see. Um, and so those are probably primarily the, the uh, common ones. And again, our antiplatelet agents. So probably primarily it's going to be clopidogrel and aspirin. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think in, in our, in my practice in Houston, that's what we're seeing too, is there's, there's definitely been a shift from the older agents to the more newer agents. And as a result of that, a, a knowledge of those reversal agents and the potential complications that they can, they can yield uh, is really quite important. Um, now, in terms of my decision-making process to whether or not to reverse these things, um, you know, it depends on first and foremost, what is it? Is it a low risk, medium risk, or high risk? If it tends to be on the lower risk side, I'm less likely to reverse these agents versus if it's a higher risk, I'm much more likely. Along with that, you know, you have to obviously take into account the patient individualized, you know, are they on an anticoagulant because of a mechanical heart valve, which would put them at very high risk for something, or is it something where relatively low risk, um, remote history of a DVT, um, if they're on just you know, um, um, atrial fibrillation that is relatively uncomplicated, you know, those would be the much lower risk of, of reversing those agents. I think it is important that um, you also, if you are able to get this history from the patient or from their family, when their last dose was, um, because if the patient, um, was on aspirin and their last dose was a week ago, well, clearly we don't have to be concerned about that as much versus those that are say on dual antiplatelet therapy and took their medications the day of their trauma. You know, that's a situation where it does put it at, at quite a bit of risk. Now in general, how long would you wait um, for these various medications um, to the point where you would not have to reverse them? So for example, if a patient took um, their, their 10A inhibitors two days ago, are you concerned about that still being in their system? Well, it's all going to depend, um, especially with a lot of the factor 10A inhibitors, um, they are renally cleared. Um, so apparent, you know, if they have severe, for some reason, if they came in with acute kidney injury or something like that, uh, it'd be something to worry about. But if it was probably about 48 hours ago, I wouldn't be as concerned. Um, it's not like warfarin, which, where warfarin has such a long half-life. Um, they're just not as long acting, I guess, as warfarin, but it's, it's always still a possibility. Um, and so a lot of times though, when our patients present to the trauma resuscitation unit, um, we do not have any idea of when their last dose was taken. Um, we have, unfortunately, a lot of our patients are poor historians um, and their families are not always reliable. So it's very difficult to determine when their last dose was taken. So if, if I have a patient, for example, who is a low risk, you know, small <laughs> traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're on aspirin per se, most of those patients I'm not reversing. But if we have one of those who is high risk, okay, let's say the patient has a, a um, frontal or temporal contusion where you know they're high risk for expansion. If they're on something like a 10A inhibitor, um, what would you suggest we would reverse them with? And what are the potential complications we can cause? That's a great question. So uh, with the factor 10A inhibitors, um, you have a couple options. Um, you have, first of all, the, uh, the first option. Now, again, if it, and I'm, I wanna just mention this, um, although it's probably not really done in practice, mm -hmm. if it was within, um, you know, if their last dose with, was within two to six hours, you can actually give them, and again, a lot of these patients are not gonna be with it. An option is activated charcoal, 50 grams, but I can tell you in practice, this is not done uh, in reality. The other option is your uh, four-factor prothrombin complex concentrates, which contain factors two, seven, nine, and 10 um, in the inactivated form, um, also known as Kcentra. That is one option. The other option that is actually FDA approved for the reversal of apixaban and rivaroxaban would be Andexanet Alpha. Uh, so those would be the options. Uh, 
with respect to kind of your um, prothrombin complex concentrate, again, uh, I would say generally we would dose these patients, um, especially if we're worried about, you know, you know, a very high risk bleed, uh, we would dose them at around 50 units per kilogram, international units per kilogram. And generally, um, it is very important though that um, you, we have to be uh, cognizant of the adverse effects, which a lot of times is going to be thrombosis, uh, thromboembolic um, events is what we worry about when we give um, uh, prothrombin complex concentrates. Um, then you have indexnet alpha. Uh, so indexnet alpha uh, has been FDA approved. It's based on the Anexa trial uh, that was published. Uh, However, though, the dosing scheme for uh, Antexnet Alpha is a little compli rather complicated. Um, it is based on what their dose was, their, the dose of uh, the factor 10A inhibitor they were on, and then the time since the last dose taken, as well as which of the factor 10A inhibitors they were taking. Um, there are two dosing um, schemes. There's a low dose and a high dose um, scheme based on that. Uh, basically, the low dose would be 400 milligrams um, with an infusion followed by an infusion of four milligrams per minute uh, for up to two hours um, for a total of 480 milligrams. And then the high dose uh, would be an 800 milligram uh, bolus with an infusion of eight milligrams per, mi per minute for up to two hours. Uh, and that would be a total dose of 960 milligrams. Now I will tell you at our institution, um, we do not we do not carry indexnet alpha, so I will say that I do not have any um, firsthand experience with it. Uh, but with respect to kind of complications of indexnet alpha, most common adverse effects were essentially uh, flushing, um, hot flashes being the most common in antibody development. Actually, um, the reported antibodies though that were produced were non-neutralizing, um, and they were not really considered to be of serious concern. Um, but again, the FDA did issue a black box warning for the potential of thromboembolic events um, and uh, ischemic risk uh, and cardiac arrest. And I think that's really the risk of any reversal agent that we Correct. do. Correct. Yep. Um, you know, it, for warfarin now, we have lots of options, vitamin K, FFP, um, as well as the four-factor PCC. Um, in my own practice, I, most patients, if I knew, do need to reverse them, I reverse them with four-factor PCC. Um, it just seems to be much more effective and much quicker. Now, if it's a patient who needs volume resuscitation, then of course, we're looking at more plasma. If it's somebody who needs a little bit more gentle of a reversal, maybe a less risky item, uh, um, um, a less risky hemorrhage, um, then vitamin K is certainly an option. And then if we look at the um, um, direct thrombin inhibitors, there really is only one antidote, correct? Yeah, the antidote is called Idarazuzumab or Crexbind. Um, it's essentially, it's a five gram dose, two and a half. It's, two, it's a two vials, um, each two and a half grams, and they're infused no more than 15 minutes apart over 10 minutes. Um, and that's generally the um, antidote for um, the uh, direct thrombin inhibitors. Well, thank you. It's obviously a very challenging uh, problem and we have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits for all of these various things. And it is a more common problem. And speaking of a, a common problem, you know, the next topic that we kind of want to address is, of course, um, um, anti-seizure medications after a traumatic brain injury. And there are really a whole host of options about what to use. Um, at my particular institution, we use uh, levoteracetam, but do you want to comment on, on sort of some of the options along the way? 
Yeah, so um, up until like two or three years ago, we were actually a uh, phenytoin hospital. And then uh, just recently in the last two to three years, we became a levetiracetam. Uh, I would say the benefit of levetiracetam over phenytoin essentially is, you know, the lack of therapeutic drug monitoring, the lack of drug-drug interactions, um, the, in, you know, the possibility of like, you know, hypotension, cardiac arrhythmias um, are not as prevalent with levetiracetam as they would be with uh with phosphenatoin or phenytoin. And what um, are you seeing now? With levetiracetam, we're probably seeing, um, if anything, it's gonna be probably the most common. Uh, obviously it's gonna be somnolence, it's gonna be uh, you know, over, you know, sedation. But another thing that usually occurs after several days though of, of starting therapy, um, although we're doing post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis for seven days, um, is sometimes psychotic symptoms. Um, patients can de develop psychotic symptoms. And if, um, and that can be difficult, right? If we know that a lot of patients with traumatic brain injury can also um, have issues with um, agitation uh, following their traumatic brain injury. So um, that is another one. Uh, and we generally, with levetiracetam, it's, it's kind of nice. We, we just, uh, we, essentially load the patients when they come to the trauma resuscitation unit. And then we initiate a maintenance dose of one gram, um, either by mouth or intravenously uh, every 12 hours um, for up to seven days. Sure. Um, one of the other medications that we will typically use, particularly in the, in the traumatic brain injury agitated patients is valproic acid. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's very interesting. So, you know, the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, you know, and, you know, especially based on the Temkin study that was conducted in 1999, actually saw a trend. Um, this is when phenytoin uh, and valproate were, were compared to one another. And what they found was that there was a trend, at least in you know, early um, arm, a trend towards increased mortality with valproate, um, which is why it's not recommended. But I will say that in our agitated TBI patients, we have been starting to use you know, especially after if it's beyond that seven days and even before the seven days, sometimes we will start them on valproate if we think that it's going to help with um, their, be, you know, control their behavioral symptoms. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, you know, if we have a patient, um, they have a, a head bleed, we have decided to reverse them. We've given them their, their uh, anti-seizure medications. You know, the next stage usually along their care is of course, you know, ICP monitoring and cerebral edema management. And so that's sort of our next topic that we wanted to address as well. Um, you know, we have, have made a pretty big switch over the course of the last, you know, 15, 20 years since I've been, I've been uh, in practice. And what we found is that, uh, you know, at the beginning, we were using a lot, a lot of mannitol um, and have really seen a shift uh, practice across the country for using more uh, hypertonic saline. So what would you say is your preference and, and why would you choose one versus the other? So um, I think I will say that our center is primarily a um, hypertonic uh, sodium uh, hospital. But uh, essentially what it comes down to is that when you have a patient who is presenting to the trauma resuscitation unit, they may not just have an isolated traumatic brain injury, right? They may have other injuries. Um, so a lot of times these patients may be, you know, under resuscitated, they may be hypovolemic. So obviously you're not going to want to use an agent, um, an osmotic diuretic, such as mannitol, 
in those patients, you're probably gonna wanna use more of a colloid volume expander type um, uh, agent such as uh, 3% or 23.4% um, sodium chloride. Uh, so that's kind of what, you know, what I would think of um, is, you know, is this patient euvolemic or hypervolemic where they can tolerate diuresis? Um, because that is a potential, right? It's a, a potential adverse effect of, um, of mannitol. So uh, that is kind of my thought process. Sure. Now, my own experience, it seems like mannitol is kind of more readily available in, for example, the emergency department or in out in the community, as opposed to comparing to hypertonic saline. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I will sometimes use mannitol, you know, in the operating room as well. Sometimes mm -hmm. hypertonic saline is a little bit more challenging to, to get a hold of. The other issue, of course, is, is central venous access um, for those particular agents. And I've heard it debated quite a bit if you should give 3% or 23.4 through a peripheral IV in a patient who has ICP crisis. And what, what's your opinion on that? My opinion is if you're, if they have impending herniation, I would say it doesn't matter what the access is, give the drug. Um, there was a recent um, study that actually, it was published in Neurocritical Care not too long ago in the last year or two that actually looked at a rather large amount of patients. It was, I think, over 200 patients where they actually gave, uh, they administered 23.4% sodium chloride via peripheral um, access. Um, they didn't see a, a huge, you know, a, a huge amount of, um, you know, uh, phlebitis, you know, uh, phlebitis or anything that warranted any type of surgical intervention as a result. Um, and I would say that, you know, I would say if you're worried about their, their neurostatus, I would not worry so much about the, the uh, whether you're giving it centrally or peripherally. If you're going to though give it peripherally, I would give it through a large vein, of course. Um, you know, it, that's just something to think about, but that, that is where I kind of stand with. Um, but a lot of times I know it always, you know, providers are always asking, can I give this, you know, peripherally? And I'm like, sure, you, you know, if you have to give one dose, it's fine. I would just probably avoid repeated doses um, or continuous infusions for a long time. Um, although we bolus um, uh, 3% or 23.4% at our institution. Yeah, my, in my own personal practice, um, we usually do 23.4% um, mm -hmm. because you could administer it a little bit quicker and get mm -hmm. the, same, the same sort of effect on it. What is your particular preference for your practice? Our, our preference at, uh, here at the Shock Trauma Center is um, actually 3% sodium chloride. Uh, and I think it's just, it's just kind of the way it's been. Um, however, though, and it's just something I want to bring up is that we are facing, at least here in Maryland, we are facing a uh, hypertonic uh, sodium uh, solution shortage. Um, we were able to obtain some 23.4%, but we're really struggling with, um, with our 3% sodium chloride supply. Um, so actually for some patients, we've, we had to use 23.4% um, um, for, for ICP crises in some patients, but 3% is what we are accustomed to using. Sure, sure. And in terms of when you treat with mannitol, um, how far are you willing to go in terms of that? And do you really follow any laboratory values when you're managing that? That is a great question. Um, so with mannitol, you know, as we know with mannitol, there's going to be complications. Um, so, you know, you have to worry about rebound ICP elevations, acute kidney injury, you know, dehydration, electrolyte abnormalities. 
So what we generally follow is we uh, follow what's called an osmolal gap. Um, so what we do is we essentially take, and what the osmolal gap is, is basically taking, um, calculating basically the trough osmolar gap uh, by subtracting the calculated osmolality from the measured osmolality. And that will give you, you know, your, um, your osmolal gap. And essentially we try to avoid more than 20 milliosms uh, per kilo. Um, as that has, um, that may indicate incomplete drug clearance uh, between doses and increases the risk of a reverse osmotic shift. Um, so that's generally what we will do. Um, and I know, I do know that, you know, traditionally a plasma osmolality of greater than 320, um, you know, was always thought to be, you know, a contraindication, although I would not say that it is a contraindication. We, we generally follow the osmolal gap. Um, and what we do is we monitor urine output, we monitor BMP, mag, FOS to prevent any electrolyte um, imbalances. And we monitor it for, you know, at least every four to six hours or as needed. Um, but as long as, you know, they're able to, you know, I generally try not to. What we try to do is we try to split between mannitol and, and hypertonic if we have to. Um, and I don't usually, we don't usually stick with one agent by itself, if that makes sense. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, you know, in my particular practice, yes, we use the osmolar gap as well. Um, you know, through, uh, serum osmosis of 320 um, is based on literature from the 1970s, where right. the philosophy was dehydrate the patient for the sake of ICP, mm -hmm. and that's when they got into the renal failure um, situation. So I think we're, we're discovering that it's a lot safer now. Now, in terms of hypertonic saline, uh, how high of a sodium are you willing to go before, you know, the side effects would outweigh the benefits? That is a great question. I don't know if we have exactly a threshold. I will tell you once we get above 160, um, maybe I, I, you know, I've had some patients go up to, unfortunately we've had patients above 165, but really for the most part, when we get above 160, it, we get a little worried. Um, I don't think that's been well established just as far as, you know, um, you know, generally the, our, you know, neurosurgical colleagues, they want us to maintain at least, uh, you know, a, a serum sodium of at least 140 or greater. Um, but I just don't know what that, you know, as long as they're, you know, we're not seeing any untowards effects, but um, generally we don't have like an established threshold per se, but I think we do get worried and we feel like, okay, have we maximized medical management at this point with hyperosmolar therapies when they're greater than 160 and especially also their acid base status. Um, one thing I just wanted to point out sometimes in order to kind of buffer that chloride load that we get with the um, hypertonic sodium solutions, we, we actually have a seven and a half percent sodium chloride acetate um, solution that we also will bolus patients with. Um, so that may be a potentially another option just to help with the, with the um, you know, to manage, you know, excessive chloride content. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I completely agree that there really isn't great literature out there to guide us on how no. far we're going to do it. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of a consensus conference with some of our, our thought leaders, um, you know, like Jeff Manley and Randy Chestnut. And, and you know, oh, yeah. when you get in a room with, with traumatic brain injury experts across the world, you know, really most people have settled into um, up to 155 to 160 as being kind of the upper limits of, of where we go. Hopefully in the future, we'll have some literature to kind of support that. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but yes, after that, the the benefits are are much less, and we need to consider other interventions, you know, such as decompressive craniectomies under those circumstances. And the final topic that we wanted to to address along the way is, of course, the use of, of DVT chemoprophylaxis. Um, you know, we talked about briefly at the very beginning about you know patients who come in uh, um, anticoagulated, uh, they have intracranial hemorrhages, and now at what point would we think about adding an anticoagulant in the form of subcutaneous heparin or, or, or noxaparin. Um, and what is the practice at, at where you work? Um, we just uh, started adopting the practice where we basically will initiate um, uh, uh, chemoprophylaxis. Uh, our agent of choice is uh, low molecular weight heparin or anoxaparin um, at basically 24 hours from the last, uh, from the stable head CT. Um, so it ends up for us being around 48 hours from their traumatic brain injury uh, is when we generally um, initiate chemoprophylaxis. Yeah, this is also something that shifted quite a bit over the course of, of mm -hmm. my own career. Um, you know, in residency, we would never treat anyone with any form of DVT chemoprophylaxis, even those that were completely immobile, comatose, and whatnot. Um, over time, we started becoming much more comfortable with it. You know, we were looking at it more 48 to 72 hours after their, their trauma. And there's some literature out there uh, on that time, although, um, you know, literature in general is, is not by any means perfect. Um, and, and to the point where we're at now, where we're recognizing that DVTs and PEs are an extremely high risk for all of our traumatic brain injury patients, um, in particular, those that are severe TBI immobile or those with, with you know, chronic significant medical conditions. So um, under those conditions, our current policy is very similar to yours. Now, for overwhelming majority of patients, um, we repeat the CAT scan at about six to 12 hours after their initial CAT scan. And if that is we stable- four hours after that is when we, we look towards um, starting the medications. And we actually um, you know, vary our medications based on the patient's particular clinical condition. Um, you know, a patient who is awake and alert uh, may not necessarily be as, as mobile as we would like um, with an isolated head injury. Those are usually the ones that we do um, subcutaneous heparin um, okay. for them. Um, those that have polytrauma or are mm -hmm. immobile spinal right. cord injury, then we usually use anoxaparin at the trauma dose of, of uh, 30 milligrams uh, twice a day um, for their management. Uh, I think there is good literature to support that that um, mm -hmm. does decrease their risk of, of DVTs and PEs when you compare that to nothing at all or to even subcutaneous heparin along the way. Um, I've, I've heard of several colleagues now who are being even more, more uh, aggressive in terms of their management. And that is if the patient, you know, comes in, has their trauma, has a stable head CT the next morning, whether it be 12 hours, six hours mm. after their stability scan, they're starting their, their um, DVT chemoprophylaxis. Um, as we study this more and more, and as we become more experienced with it, the risks of these is a lot less than what we, what we had initially suspected. Exactly. And I think that it's also important that it's not only getting that medication initiated, it's also intermittent stoppage of that. There is some literature to support that that does raise your risk of uh, DVT, even a few doses along the way. Um, so generally speaking, we do not hold our, our subcutaneous heparin for uh, drain removals, um, lumbar punctures, you know, minor procedures and whatnot. We usually just continue it straight through. If they're having a major cranial operation, then, then we usually hold it for 24 hours for their operation and then proceed forward uh, with resuming that after that. Um, you have to obviously balance it with if the patient is unstable in terms of their hemorrhages, 
if they are borderline operative, those we will kind of delay a little bit longer in terms of that. But if you look at the general population, those are ones that we start um, extremely early or as early as we possibly can. So we've, we've explored um, you know, medication reversals for hemorrhages. We've explored um, anti-seizure medicines, as well as um, hyperosmolar therapy and, and uh, subcutaneous uh, um, DVT chemoprophylaxis. You know, I think that all of those topics are something that we see on a daily basis and very frequently and can lead to both complications for not treating and complications for treating. And so finding that delicate balance is where we look for individualized medicine. Um, so this will conclude our, our podcast for this. We hope you have enjoyed it and learned uh, some things from us. We'd like to thank the Congress of Neurological Surgeons as well as the Neurocritical Care Society. We wish you a good day.